When was the last time you were in the Holy Land? You say, I've never been there. Or maybe it's been several years. Well, we're about to take you there next. Welcome to Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. It's the one-hour flyover of the Middle East. I'm John Geiger. Our host, as always, is noted Old Testament scholar, author, and conference speaker, Dr. Charlie Dyer. I love the excitement that we feel, Charlie, at the start of every program, taking people to the Holy Land. You know, John, I get excited about going to Israel anytime. And the opportunity to take people there, even if it's by radio, is a great opportunity. So, yeah, I get excited, and I know you do, too. All right, let's get started by asking, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and and what does it mean for you? Well, our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. It's called The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, and it's an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. Receiving your free e-gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart for the Jewish people. All right, well, let's dig into a fresh look at stories coming out of the Middle East from this week. And you know, Charlie, instead of looking at Israel's upcoming election and their ongoing struggles with Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas, what do you say we focus instead on some other significant news items from the region? The first is an economic crisis in Egypt caused in part by the war between Russia and Ukraine. How are these two events linked and how serious is the crisis? Well, two key details help provide the link. Uh, The first is something we've already talked about in the past. Russia and Ukraine together provide 30% of the world's wheat supply, and the war is disrupting that supply. The second detail isn't as well known, but Egypt's the world's largest importer of wheat. 62% of the wheat consumed in Egypt is imported from Russia and Ukraine. The wheat shortage is being caused by the war, and of course it's raising the specter of food shortages in Egypt. Russia's foreign minister has assured Egypt that their orders for grain will be met, but it's unclear when or how that'll happen. Egypt has been looking for alternative wheat supplies from other markets, but at a much higher cost. The worldwide price of wheat has increased by over 50% since the start of the war. Egyptians were already struggling financially, but the increased cost for basic necessities like food and fuel has caused the inflation rate there to increase to over 15%. Nearly a third of Egypt's population already live below the poverty line. Egypt provides food subsidies to about 90% of its population, but that's now causing Egypt's foreign currency reserves to dwindle. The value of the Egyptian pound is at an all-time low against the dollar. Egypt has already arranged for $500 million in financing from the World Bank, and they're also requesting a new loan from the International Monetary Fund. But these temporary fixes will only add to the country's already sizable foreign debt. The country's options are limited. They hope to boost domestic wheat production, but that'll take some time. And with a critical water shortage, it's unclear if they can adapt their farming techniques quickly enough to produce more without additional water. Their other option is to reduce the domestic consumption of bread. On average, Egyptians consume double the global average of wheat each year, at nearly 320 pounds per person. While the world focuses on the destruction taking place in Ukraine, and rightly so, we need to remember that the impact of that war is also being felt by other countries, and those effects could ultimately ripple out to the rest of the world. 
Well, in a little over a month, Rosh Hashanah begins Israel's fall feasts. And as the feasts approach, the thoughts of some, of course, turn to the rebuilding of the Second Temple and the ashes of the red heifer. Why is there such interest in those subjects right now? And what exactly has been happening? You know, just over a week ago, the Jewish people remembered Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of the Hebrew month Av, which is the date of the destruction of the first and second Jewish temples. And the time between that event, which looks backward, and the fall festivals, which point forward, is a time when many focus on God's still future promises to the Jewish people. Now, I think it's the confluence of all these events that's creating interest uh, that we're seeing right now, but we need to distinguish reality from speculation. Now, in terms of what's been happening, in July, five red heifers from a farm near Comanche, Texas, emerged as possible candidates for the red heifer, at least according to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem. Members of the Temple Institute staff flew to Texas to inspect the heifers, and apparently two were very close to passing, though they still have another year to go before they're old enough and have to go through the inspection again. Uh, the heifer or female cow needs to be two to three years old, red or auburn in color, and have no physical blemishes or defects. It can't even have two hairs of a different color or it's disqualified. The Temple Institute's also the group working to prepare the implements needed to resume worship in the new temple. They've completed virtually all the implements and have been working to train Kohanim, those from the priestly line, to perform the various services. Now, of course, what's still missing is the temple itself and the absence of those red heifer ashes. Uh, should one of the heifers now under observation pass that final inspection, that'll put additional pressure on those who believe the third temple needs to be started now. But as of right now, there isn't a red heifer. However, that search is still on in earnest, and uh, we'll keep tabs on what's happening. Okay. You're listening to The Land and the Book. It's from Moody Radio, and our host is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Gager. Together, we're looking at a set of stories that have come out of the Middle East this past week. Charlie, last month, archaeologists announced the start of a dig at a site believed to be the location of Joshua's tomb. Where is it located and what did those archaeologists hope to find? And I'm wondering, Charlie, what makes them so sure it is Joshua's tomb? And let me start with the word of caution, just by way of what you said. You know, most archaeological digs are funded by foundations and, and private donors, and they rely on volunteers who pay for the privilege of coming to that dig. And as a result, those in charge of a dig, especially a new one, often have a tendency to hype the project in an effort to secure funding and those volunteers. And that's what I think in part's happening here. Uh, in spite of all the headlines, these archaeologists aren't looking for Joshua's tomb. The site they're excavating is Kirbet Tivna in Samaria. It's believed to be the location of the biblical town of Timnet Heres or Timnet Sira. Uh, those happen to be the two names of the town given to Joshua in the book by his name. Uh, the goal of the first season of this dig is rather limited. They're going to look at a limited number of areas at the site, and they think those will hopefully help them provide the site's history. Now, in addition to the period of the conquest, they also believe they might find evidence of the town's role during the time of Israel's kingdom, even all the way down into the early Roman period. Uh, surface excavations at the site suggest it was populated from the Bronze Age all the way up to the beginning of the Ottoman Empire. Now, the first excavation season started on July 24 and runs through August 19. So this year's dig is almost complete, and at least so far, no details have emerged. But I expect to hear more about any discoveries early next year as they get ready for the next season of excavation. But I don't expect to hear about the discovery of a monumental structure with Joshua's name carved over the entrance. Uh, it's likely Joshua's tomb, like most tombs at that time, 
was outside the city and was little more than an unmarked cave-like structure carved into the bedrock. All right, so much for the hype. Well, the world's largest emergency room recently opened its doors in Tel Aviv. Charlie, beside its massive size, what makes this emergency room so unique? Well, this story provides a different perspective, I think, on amazing Israel. Every hospital has an emergency room, and if you had the misfortune of visiting one recently, you know it can be a frustrating experience. Uh, emergency rooms tend to be overcrowded and understaffed with long wait times. And that's why I found this new emergency room in Tel Aviv so unique and exciting. Uh, indeed, it's the world's largest ER. It's over 86,000 square feet in size. But the first thing a patient notices on arrival are roving robots to help them navigate. A facial recognition system and digital registration system helps non-critical patients self-triage upon check-in. The automated system checks the patient's temperature, blood pressure, pulse, blood oxygen saturation, and the results are sent straight to the hospital computing system. Staff are alerted immediately to any high-risk patients. Robots then lead the patients to departments for the next stage of the care they need. A phone app will tell the patient exactly what's happening and will provide their test results and treatment. This new ER has 100 inpatient hospital beds, but the number can be doubled should a mass casualty event arise, so they have the ability to expand dramatically. Now imagine an ER using state-of-the-art technology alongside dedicated, compassionate staff to help those in need receive care as quickly as possible. That's the new model of this ER that just came online in Amazing Israel. Charlie, for somebody who's not familiar with the website for The Land and the Book, it is thelandandthebook.org. What will they find there if they take a visit? Well, a couple things. They can find uh, access to the uh, program if they want to go back and listen again. Uh, There's a link there to our podcast. They can find the books that uh, you've written and that I've written if they want to learn more about us or uh, about other things that we've done. Uh, It's really an incredible place to find that information, and it'll connect them to Moody's radio system, which will tell them about other programs being published by Moody Radio. That's terrific. Lots of resources at thelandandthebook.org. And you can also send us an email anytime. Charlie, uh, one of our segments coming up, not the next segment, the third on this program is dedicated to questions and answers. Uh, How do you prepare for that? Uh, Actually, I I sit down at my computer with my Bible beside me, and when I get the email in, I try and answer as quickly as I can. And then, of course, we try and put those on air as quickly as possible after that. But that's the teacher part of me. That's that's working the rope without a net. (laughs) And we enjoy it every single week. You can get your question to Charlie when you email us at thelandandthebook@moody.edu. A great conversation up next on The Land and the Book. If I were to ask you how many well-known Bible locations you can tour today in the Holy Land, what would you guess? Sites of significance that you can see yet today. Well, coming up, a guest who takes us to 44 Bible places you can still visit today. Welcome to segment two of our broadcast. We call it The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and won't you consider with me just for a moment another creative idea for showing the love of Christ to your Jewish coworker, neighbor, or friend? So you're a follower of Jesus, and your Jewish friend is not, and you're having a conversation, and the Crusades come up. What do you do with that? Roy Schwartz is with Chosen People Ministries. He's an expert. I'm not. Roy, what do you say? 
Well, uh, that's a, a... Nothing like an easy question. Yeah, right. That is a, <laughs> indeed a tough question. Well, the Crusades was a blot in the history of the church. And we need to recognize that um, many of those Crusaders were just simply trying to serve their God as best that they knew how, and they did it in a terrible way. Many of them did not know the Bible. Many of them did it for political reasons. Many of them did it for financial reasons. And many of them were not even serving God. They were serving themselves. And so to blame all of Christianity for the Crusades is just a terrible thing. There are certain times in every people's history when we've done some terrible things in the name of God. And uh, to judge the God of creation and the God of Israel based on some poor decisions that his people made is a bad thing. I mean, our father Abraham made a bad thing. He went to Egypt and passed off his wife as his sister. I think if he had a chance, he'd take that one back. Mm. Probably wouldn't even have gone to Egypt in the first place. But uh, the history of God's people, including Israel, is filled with some many bad decisions. David sending Uriah into the heat of battle so that he could die and thus cover up his uh, adultery with Bathsheba. I mean, there's so many terrible things, both old and new, both Jewish and Christian that have been done in the name of God. And that's basically what I would share is, is you know, that if we just focus on the negative, you're going to find plenty. But you, you need to realize that uh, God loves sinners and forgives them. Helping us reset our focus, that's Roy Schwartz with Chosen People Ministries. After serving in our Daily Bread Ministries for nearly two decades as managing editor of Sports Spectrum magazine, Dave Brannon was a senior editor for our Daily Bread Publishing. Among his numerous published books are The Sports Devotional Bible, Heads Up Sports Devotions, Stand Firm, and Beyond the Valley. He has also written articles for the Our Daily Bread devotional booklet since 1988. I kind of feel like I grew up with him, having read that booklet. Uh, He retired in 2021 after 40 years with the ministry. Dave and his wife, Sue, live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. After all these years reading his devotionals in Our Daily Bread, for me, today's conversation is like sitting down with a celebrity. I'm telling you. Hey, welcome to the land and the book, Dave. Well, thank you. That's uh, more than I deserve. (laughs) I'm sure you've seen other Holy Land travel guides out there. And uh, I'm wondering, help us understand how this one that you've worked on is unique. Well, the story how it got started is kind of fun. So um, I had come up with this idea of top 100. So I had started listing top 100 things in the Bible, like top 100 amazing promises of God and uh, reasons not to be afraid, 100 people Jesus talked to, uh, 100 names of God. I was going over this list with a friend of mine, Mike Napa, who was my colleague at the time at uh, Our Daily Bread. Mike and I were sitting around talking and looking at the list and he he came across my 100 biblical places you can still visit. He said, Dave, that's a book right there. You don't have to put this in another book. That's good right there. So we um, worked on a little while together, just brainstorming it, and decided to go with 44. And I don't know if that's because it's Pete Maravich's number or not. <laughs> but um, for those of you who know Pete Maravich, he's the greatest college basketball player ever. But I decided on 44. Uh, biblical places you can still visit. And that was going to be my title, but ended up, um, it works better for the ministry to call it Lands of the Bible today. Well, let's take one of those 44. What's one of your favorite places to visit mentioned in this book that maybe maybe some folks miss? Well, if we're going to put it that way, I'm going to say Capernaum. 
because Capernaum is just a, a, like a powerful place to visit for some reason. And I think it's because so much happened there. When you walk into the city, it, there's a sign that said Jesus hometown, which surprises because, you know, we're thinking Nazareth, right? Uh, Bethlehem, you know, something like that. And it's Capernaum and it says that on the sign. So I think it's because Jesus spent so much time there because Peter lived there and because there's a synagogue there that even though it's been renovated since Jesus was there, it's just the ruins of a synagogue. The actual floor where he probably spoke to the people is there. Mm -hmm. Uh, The walls are different, but just the idea that he was standing on those stones is pretty amazing. So it's not very big, not a whole lot there, but I loved it. Yeah. If you read our Daily Bread, you've read his work. Dave Brannon is our guest today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and we're talking about the lands of the Bible today. Hey, the size of this book is compact, just six inches by six inches, making it ideal to pack along for your trip to Israel. How do you envision someone using this on site? Well, actually, I just got an email from a friend of mine, Steve Gear, who actually is the artist who did the, the magic to make this book look so good. And his, uh, I think it's sister-in-law, visited Israel recently and took this book with her. And she said it was invaluable to her because so many of the places she visited, she could read what was written in there, look at some pictures, and already be familiar with it before she went there. And mm-hmm. I think it's it's not a complete guide. It's not a scholarly guide or anything like that. It's more of a friendly, you know, here's what I saw or here's what's there, and you can see it too kind of thing. Yeah. More than deep digs into the great archaeology that's there or something like mm-hmm. that, you know, or some scholarly look at Scripture. It's more of a friendly, hey, let's talk about this place idea. And I think that's how people can perceive it when they take it with them. They can they can get some extra information that they might not get from their guide. Yeah, you're prepped and ready to go, having having looked at it. Yeah. What about that person who will never get to the Holy Land, either for financial, health, or other reasons? How can they benefit from this book? Right, and that's another group of people that I was thinking about, because we all know people in our church who go, man, I'd love to go to the Holy Land. But for lots of reasons— they, they can't go. And this gives them like a visit. You know, you can visit the Holy Land through this book without having to get climb on a plane and go through customs and everything else. Mm-hmm. And you get, you know, a firsthand look at these places it is in a way different from other books that I've seen about Israel. This is more of a personal. For instance, I have reflections on, I think, 10 reflections on things I felt and saw when mm-hmm. I was there. Mm-hmm to get people like a personal touch. You know, this is, this is what you might feel when you're there yes. and you can do it vicariously through the book. Yeah. More than facts and figures and geography and archeology. span Right. Even some places I put, I put like directions to get there. <laughs> I, I love, I love maps and I love directions. I thought that'd be fun. So. 44 Bible places you can still visit today. That's our conversation today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger with our guest, Dave Brannon, for many years an editor and writer with Our Daily Bread. His name may well be familiar to you. One of the things that uh, I like is that for each site mentioned, you explain what contemporary travelers are likely to find there. I mean, let's be honest. Some of these sites offer way more visual imagery than others. They're very obvious. You know, what you see is what you'd expect to see. Others, though, quite honestly, require a bit more imagination, trying to place them in Bible history. Your thoughts? Right. Placing them in Bible history is important for us 
as far as just intellectually, we, we want to know where it is. But to see the places is much more valuable to us, I think. Once we see them, then it's in our brain what it looks like, you know, and it becomes more real. One example to me is Caesarea Philippi, which we read the scripture and we read that Jesus took the disciples to Mount Hermon and he was talking to them and he got from them the confession that he was the Christ. But when you go there and you see that he was standing in front of what they called in those days the gates of Haiti, which is a huge hole in the side of the mountain. Mm -hmm. And you know that it was a place that was full of pagan ritual, the god Pan, they, they worshiped there. And Jesus stood there in that location and heard them say that he was the Christ. And he told them he was going to build his church. It takes on so much more significance to either see it or, you know, read about what was there than just to read the narrative in scripture. You know, if that's all we had, that's all we ever need. But it's nice to have that extra touch of the visual and the, the reality that there are other things around this area that we didn't know about before. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So the book kind of fills in some of those blanks that you might not have. Take us to another favorite spot of yours in the Holy Land and explain why it's so special to you, Dave. Well, I would say uh, the Sea of Galilee itself was probably one of the most uh, spellbinding. I, I still recall, and I, I wrote about it in here in my reflection, uh, we, we rounded a curve in the bus we were in, and there was a Sea of Galilee. It was almost indescribable, the feeling of being there and realizing this is where Jesus walked on the water and did so many other things in the area because there's so many little towns around there where he did things. It was just as breathtaking, the beauty of it, and the reality of the fact that he gave the Beatitudes in this area and cast out demons on one side and just did so much right there at that area. So I think the beauty of the Sea of Galilee and, mm -hmm. the, and the reality of what Jesus did there was um, spectacular. You're a writer, so obviously a trip to Israel is going to impact the way someone like you writes devotionals or anything. But for the rest of us, how might a trip to the Holy Land impact our lives, our ministries? Yeah, that's what I say to everybody who wants to go or has the opportunity, go, because it brightens Scripture for you. It shines a light on it that you don't have normally, because these places that are just words, you know, and, and names of places become places you have now seen, yeah. you know. I mean, it's nice to talk about Disney or talk about, you know, the Smoky Mountains and all that stuff, but unless you go there, you know, you see it then it's part of you. Mm -hmm. So it becomes more a part of you, and Scripture becomes clearer to you. Another great place is Mount Carmel, where um, Elijah called down fire from the heavens to burn up the altar and, and the sacrifice. But to be there and to see what he saw in the distance when he was afraid and running away from Jezebel, it just brings it all to life for you. Mm. So, you know, being there is spectacular, but if you can't be there, at least read about these places and, you know, read atlases and things like that so you get a picture that this is real. This is not just some made-up story. Mm -hmm. All these things that are in Scripture are factual yeah. and supported by archaeology. They're supported by, you know, the reality of what's there still today. Yeah. John Beck is a guy that we've had on the land in the book. He says of your guidebook, these places will change the way you hear God speak. 
What do you think he means by that? Well, first of all, for John Beck to compliment what I've done is amazing because he is an amazing scholar. And uh, we've loved having him part of our daily bread for quite a while. Um, it's like having a, um, a piece of paper in front of you that's got a picture, but it's all in black and white. And you color it in, and it becomes more vivid and more alive for you. And this kind of thing, what John does and what this book does, fills in those blanks and gives you color that you can now see and appreciate. Whereas before, it's more of a, an image that you don't understand until you see the colors. You know? So that's what it does for me, yeah. uh, being there and visiting the Holy Land. It just illuminates Scripture in a way that you can't imagine. Yeah. you got 30 seconds to do this one. Last question. How do you define success for this guidebook? It's a success if what, Dave? I think it's a success if it drives people to understand Scripture better, to get a deeper view of when you read about the Garden of Gethsemane and you see pictures of it, you see something in the book that gives you, oh, oh, this is where Jesus actually was with his disciples, you know, and it's become part of you rather than just some idea in your head. So I think that's what I'm trying to do there is make these things a part of the reader's experience when you read Scripture. That's Dave Brannon, whose book, The Lands of the Bible Today, is linked to our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. want to say thank you for your time and want to encourage anybody listening right now to keep listening. Why? Well, Charlie Dyer returns to the studio, him and a whole bunch of friends like you. Yeah, it's time to answer your questions about the Bible, prophecy, the Middle East, and a whole lot more. That's our next segment right here on The Land and the Book. It's that time again, time to open our inbox and see what questions have come in from listeners like, well, you. This is The Land and the Book, by the way. I'm John Geiger, and we love this segment because it, it makes the program into a two-way street, right, Charlie? It really does, John. It's, uh, I love people having questions. That's like saying, sick them to a dog for a teacher, uh, because you know where people are wondering where they're at in the Bible, and it gives us an opportunity to interact with them uh, both ways, uh, hearing where they are and then providing answers. Well, here's where we are if you'd like to email your question, thelandandthebook at moody.edu. That's how you get your question to Charlie. Charlie, it doesn't take six months or six weeks to get an answer from you, does it? I try and answer questions within one day, sometimes two days, if at all possible. So they'll get an email response immediately. And then we try and put those on the program in, in the order in which they come. But usually you know, a few weeks later, they'll hear their question on air. All right, let's get to a question from Jen and John. They say, you always hear people say when somebody dies, they're in heaven now. But are they really? Or is there a waiting period for Jesus' second coming or judgment? Well, actually, I think the, the best answer is found by comparing several passages of Scripture. In Luke 23, 43, that's when Jesus was on the cross, and he said to the thief on the cross, this day you'll be with me in paradise. Well, you trace paradise through the Bible, and it refers to the place where God is. 
In fact, in the New Testament, uh, it's connected with the New Jerusalem, but it's definitely a place of conscious existence in the presence of God. And if we call it heaven, that's not a bad thing, or the New Jerusalem. Uh, but the second passage is John 14, verses 2 and 3. You know, Jesus said there, in my Father's house are many rooms or many mansions or many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. So our dwelling place after death is in God's eternal home. And I assume that's equivalent to the New Jerusalem, or we could call it heaven. And the final passage is 2 Corinthians 5.8. You know, Paul wrote, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Well, when we die, our physical bodies go into the ground, but our soul and spirit are taken to be with Jesus. Now, at the time of the rapture, our physical bodies will be resurrected and reunited with our soul and spirit. But when a person dies, their soul and spirit are indeed in heaven or with God or with Jesus, however you want to describe it. Linney writes, since Moses was told he would not see the promised land due to his disobedience, how then did he see and be in the land east of the Jordan that was given to the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh? Frankly, I get confused when the promised land is spoken of in Genesis 15 and the eastern boundary is the Euphrates River. Can you help, please? Yeah, and while Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were allowed to live east of the promised land, that land where they were living wasn't actually part of the land promised to Israel. Now, I say that because of the specific land boundaries outlined by God in Numbers 34. In that section, God says the eastern boundary would run along the slopes east of the Sea of Kinneret, which is the Sea of Galilee, and then run down along the Jordan and end at the Salt Sea, which is the Dead Sea. So Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were outside this boundary to the east. By the way, those same boundaries are then repeated in Ezekiel 47 for the future millennial kingdom with verse 18 again repeating that eastern boundary. So Moses was indeed viewing the land from outside the specific land boundaries God had set, even though that's where Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh were allowed to stay. Here's a question from Mary. She says, somebody gave me a copy of the New Century Translation Bible uh, to send overseas. And I realize the New Century Translation isn't recommended by conservative biblical scholars. Is it better to not send this Bible? Uh, thank you for your help and for your teaching, which I hear via podcast or on Alexa. Well, I start by saying I'm personally not a fan of the New Century Version because of its commitment to a, a more gender-neutral translation and because it seems to be a more loose translation than I would prefer. Now, however, having said that, it's still a translation that does communicate in a very understandable way. It's actually translated to be on a fifth-grade reading level, which would be very helpful to someone overseas, especially if someone for whom English isn't the native language. And a passage like John 3.16, which in that translation says, God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him may not be lost but have eternal life. Well, that still communicates the gospel message. Now, all that to say, I would send it, and then I'd pray that God directs it to someone who might read and come to faith through it. You're listening to The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger, and it's you we'd like to connect with as you send us your question. Connect with us via email, The Land and the Book at moody.edu. That's how you get your question to Charlie, the land and the book at moody.edu. James wants to know, does Israel have legal abortion? Can you address this on one of your programs? Thank you. 
Yeah, sadly, Israel does have legal abortion. Now, the topic really doesn't match our focus for the program, but it is something all of us here at Land in the Book are concerned about. Now, the good news is there's a pro-life Jewish organization trying to reverse that sad reality. And I'd encourage you and, and anyone listening right now to check it out. Now, here's their website. It's www. Bead Chaim, that's B-E-A-D-C-H-A-I-M.com. Now, I believe the group are Jewish believers, and they're trying to save the unborn children of Israel. The reality right now in Israel is discouraging because the state actually funds abortions. Mm. But I do find it encouraging to know there are believers in Israel standing up for the unborn and trying to make a difference. Uh, here's one from Fred. We read about the 144,000 in the book of Revelation and understood that they are comprised of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. In Revelation 14, verse 4, we read that they were not defiled with women. Does this mean that the 144,000 are men? Well, because of those details that are in Revelation 14, 4, I do believe the 144,000, which were first mentioned in chapter 7, will be Jewish men. Now, some take that phrase, who've not been defiled with women, to symbolically refer to the witnesses not being defiled by the world's corruption. But there's really nothing in the passage that suggests we should take it any way other than its literal sense, especially since the passage goes on to explain the phrase by saying uh, they kept themselves chaste. Well, the Greek word used for chaste is parthenoi. That's the plural form of the word parthenos, which means virgin. And the fact that they've not been defiled with women, and he uses the Greek word for women, also points to these 144,000 special witnesses, I think, being sexually pure men. In Acts 9, verse 7, we read that the men who accompanied Saul on the road to Damascus heard a voice. But in Acts 22, verse 9, Paul testified that, quote, they heard not the voice of him that spoke to me. So what's your take on this? <laughs> I remember this, John, coming up during my second year of Greek. Uh, and that takes me back a long time. And in English, these verses do appear to contradict one another, but this is where looking at the verses in Greek really can help. Uh, the Greek word for hearing in both verses is akouo, and it has a multiple nuances of meaning. Now, when followed by a word in the accusative case, like in chapter 9, it refers to the extent of hearing. That is, in that verse, Paul is actually hearing the words being spoken to him by Jesus. But when akouo is followed by a word in the genitive case, like in chapter 22, it refers to the meaning of the sound. That is, they didn't understand what was being said, even though they did hear something. And that leads to the second point in all this. In both Acts 9 and Acts 22, we're told that Jesus addressed Paul using the Hebrew or Aramaic form of his name. It's a transliteration, but it has like Shaul or Saul, uh, rather than the Greek form of his name, which was Saulos, and that's found in Acts 7 and 8, where we're first introduced to Saul. Now, that sounds bizarre, but here's what it suggests, that when Jesus actually talked to Saul on the road to Damascus, he spoke to Saul either in Hebrew or Aramaic. And it's possible the individuals who were accompanying Saul were Hellenistic Jews who spoke Greek rather than Hebrew or Aramaic. Now, as such, they heard the sound of someone speaking, but they couldn't comprehend what was being said. And that could be why Luke, who's the author of both those passages, is very careful to make a distinction between a kuo followed by the accusative in Acts 9 and a kuo followed by the genitive in Acts 22. I think the NIV, the New American Standard, the ESV, all try to convey that sense in their translation, and they are good translations in that regard. All right, thanks for unraveling that mystery for us, Charlie. Some people ask, what is the next event on God's prophetic timeline? Why is it important, and what does it mean for you? Yeah, John, and our friends at Life and Messiah are giving away a free ebook that addresses this issue. 
The Rapture, Paul's Hope and Comfort, is an engaging ebook that explores 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 and that will surely be an encouragement to any believer looking forward to the Messiah's imminent return. And receiving your free gift is easy. All you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. When you do, you'll receive this free ebook. You'll also be able to learn more there about Life in Messiah's 135-year history of sharing God's heart with the Jewish people. Thank you, Charlie. You know, a lot of people are still unaware that we've got a podcast, and they can use that podcast in all kinds of creative ways, including sharing the broadcast with a friend. And Charlie, we get confirmation on this all the time from folks that it's a it's a neat tool. How would you encourage somebody to take advantage of the podcast? Oh, I tell them it's uh, simple. Go to the uh, Land in the Book website and they can click on it there. But to listen via the podcast allows them to listen anytime they want. It's for their convenience and it's just a great way to, to listen or to hear the program again. And you can find that podcast again at thelandandthebook.org. Charlie's devotional next. Time for that fourth segment here on The Land and the Book, where some people say we save the best for last. Well, we make no apology for that. Charlie's devotional is always something to look forward to. Uh, More on that in just a moment. But first, though, let's enjoy this Holy Land experience, the account of someone who's traveled to Israel and has had their life impacted like this. Hi, my name is Charlene. And uh, I just want to say that my tour of the Holy Land with Charlie Dyer has become one of my life's smile markers. I especially treasure my memories of the sunny morning that we spent on the Sea of Galilee. It's a freshwater lake, which the Bible refers to as a sea, and it's subject to sudden weather changes and storms. But on that sunny November morning, sailing in a wooden fishing boat, I fixed my mind on that still sparkling sea as it must have looked during Jesus' active ministry. I felt overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude for the opportunity to be there and for the spiritual inspiration of the experience and for the reality of the great sacrifice that Jesus had made for me. And uh, mostly that he has been so faithful to me through a great many of life's storms. So for me, the Holy Land will always mean the land, the sea, and the book. Thanks so much for that uh, great story. You, of course, are familiar with the term Gentile, and you can point Galilee out on a Bible map. But what about Galilee of the Gentiles? Ever heard of that? Charlie, what do we need to know about Galilee of the Gentiles? I'm intrigued with this thought of yours from Isaiah chapter 9. One of my favorite moments on a trip to Israel comes as we approach the Sea of Galilee for the very first time. We've driven through Nazareth, and I've been talking nonstop about Nazareth and Galilee and Cana and olive trees and Saladin's battle with the Crusaders and James Michener's novel, The Source. But all the while I'm talking, I'm watching for one particular spot. And when we reach it, I stop whatever I'm talking about and tell our group to be on the lookout because the Sea of Galilee is just about to come into view. They're about to see for the very first time this body of water that played such a major role in Jesus' ministry. And then the sea comes into view, and it's so small. The response from the bus is usually rather underwhelming. 
For some reason, we've come to expect a large body of water. After all, we grew up calling it the Sea of Galilee. But in reality, it's just a lake, and a relatively small lake at that. How small is the Sea of Galilee? Mark Twain compared it to Lake Tahoe on the California-Nevada border. But Twain was off by a factor of three. That is, Lake Tahoe is actually three times the size of the Sea of Galilee in terms of surface area. Uh, Here are some other comparisons. We could fit 150 seas of Galilee into Lake Erie and 350 into Lake Michigan. The Sea of Galilee is the size of Lake Wachita in Arkansas or Seneca Lake in New York or Lake Wallenpaulpak in New Hampshire. One final stop on this day brings us to a spectacular overlook called Mount Arbel. And there, the smallness of the lake becomes even clearer. From this cliffside perch, we can see almost the entire Sea of Galilee, and we now realize clearly that it's just a small freshwater lake. And as if that's not discouraging enough, I then point out all the places in the life of Jesus situated along its shore, and we discover that most of Jesus' ministry took place in a small triangle of land on the very northern tip of the lake. It's sometimes called the Evangelical Triangle, the area where the euangelion, the good news, was proclaimed. Uh, The points of the triangle are formed by the three cities in which the gospel writer said Jesus performed most of his miracles, Bethsaida, Chorazin, and Capernaum. And that's when it hits us. If we had been in charge, this is not where we would have sent God's Son. It's too small, too remote, too insignificant. We would have selected Rome, the central city of the world at that time. Or if we wanted the events to take place in the promised land, we would have chosen Jerusalem, where the magnificent temple of God stood. Or at least Judea, the region around Jerusalem connected with the cities of biblical significance like Bethlehem and Hebron and Beersheba. But God sent Jesus to an out-of-the-way corner of the Roman Empire, to the district of Galilee, a region looked down on by religious and political elite, and to an obscure corner of a small lake in that region. What was God thinking? We don't have to wonder long because God himself tells us why he did this. Right after Jesus' 40-day temptation in the wilderness, Matthew says the following, Now when Jesus heard that John had been taken into custody, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, that was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Matthew then quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Jesus had to go to the land of Zebulun and Naphtali because God told Isaiah the prophet, this is the area he would make glorious. Now, most people don't know what area was promised to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali. So take a second and look at the maps in the back of your Bible. Or if you're using an electronic Bible, then Google both names. Here's what you'll find. The region around Nazareth was part of the area given to the tribe of Zebulun, and the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee belonged to the tribe of Naphtali. Jesus went to the very area where God promised that his light would shine. 
Isaiah actually tells us quite a bit about this predicted ministry. He says God had originally treated the area with contempt, that it was called Galilee of the Gentiles. And by that, he means that the area had come under God's judgment to the point where God allowed the Gentiles to dominate and control the region. In Isaiah's day, it was taken over and controlled by the Assyrians. In Jesus' day, it was the Romans. But it was Galilee of, or controlled by, or belonging to the Gentiles. Foreigners controlled the fate of God's people. Isaiah also identifies Galilee with the Jordan River and the sea. Most people have never thought about this, but what sea did God have in mind? We usually think of the Mediterranean Sea. But Isaiah connects this sea with the Jordan River and the tribal allotment of Zebulun and Naphtali. And what sea is in that area? (laughs) You got it, the Sea of Galilee. Isaiah predicted it was the place God would make glorious by shining the light of his glory in an area that had for too long only known darkness. Now, look back down at the lake and focus on that tiny triangle of land where Jesus did so many of his miracles. What lessons can we take away from this perch overlooking a small lake in an out-of-the-way area in Galilee? How about this? No ministry for God is ever insignificant if God is in it. All too often, we're guilty of using the wrong yardstick to measure importance. We focus on size and budget and numbers and location. And we assume that if something is bigger and flashier, and more prominent, then it must be more significant. But looking down at this small lake in Galilee and remembering Isaiah's prophecy reminds me that God chose this most insignificant area to do some of his most significant work. Jesus fed the multitudes here, but he poured his life into just 12, and one of those washed out. Yet it was that small group that ultimately turned the world upside down. So, What's your ministry for God today? Whatever it is, I want you to walk off this overlook with one key thought. Whatever your ministry is for God, if He is in it, then it's not insignificant. Just look at that small group of fishermen living down there on the shore of this tiny lake. Hmm. And once again, Charlie, I'm amazed the way you pulled these perspectives out of Scripture. Thanks for that uh, devotional. Well, if you would like to connect with us here at The Land and the Book, we'd love to connect with you. You can email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Maybe you'd just like to share how the program has impacted your life, maybe helped you with a Sunday school lesson, or if you're a pastor, a message. Maybe something you've been able to share in a conversation with a friend. Tell us that story. It matters. It's important to us. You can email us again at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Our website for information about today's program, past programs, and next week's program, it's thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Also there, the Facebook icon you're familiar with, give it a click and you'll be at our Facebook page where we're loaded up with fresh stories and photos you'll find uh, very helpful, thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger for Charlie Dyer and Dan Anderson. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.